not easy for a watchdog to smile. And I guess I've always pictured John as kind of being a watchdog. There's such a seriousness to life. Well, this morning's text, as I've been in it this week, it's forced me to reconsider my estimation of John the Baptist. This scene actually looks quite different from the caricature that I've probably carried with me most of my life in thinking of John. And I know it's not the only scene and we put all those things together. But if an artist were to paint this particular scene, he would paint this broad smile across John's face. And then in the background, you would have his disciples wearing this just distressing frown. That's the scene that's before us in this text. Uh, uh, <coughs> this, the thing that gives John tremendous joy gets on the nerves of his disciples. And so the context of John, the, remember the, in, the, in, the whole, in the whole setting of the book of the Gospel of John, This is the next exhibit that John brings forth to make his case for Jesus Christ. That's what we have here in John 3. Everything John has compiled, you remember, is carefully selected. This is the last gospel account written. He knows others have already written accounts of Jesus' life. But what John writes, he writes to help us see Jesus. And seeing him rightly, we will, that we would believe in him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing will have life in his name. That's the purpose of John, John twenty thirty one. So this morning, he, he, he puts John the Baptist back on the witness stand for us. This is his next exhibit to show us who Christ is so that we'll believe in him. And so John the Baptist's attitude towards Christ, John the Baptist's words about Christ, they all point us to believe that Christ, in Christ, who is the Son of God. And so when I, the title this morning is, I just say his is the, the witness of jealousy defeating joy. That, that we find in him this, I was thinking of this, the joy of a dying candle with the dawning of the sun. We made it through the night and yes, I'm about to expire, but the, but the light is coming, the sun is coming. So John is fading, but Jesus is beginning and growing and, 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 the, and the sun is dawning. John finds joy in this. He knew his role. He knew that day would come. He wants this to happen and he's happy about it. He isn't a grouch. He doesn't live out the remainder of his days bitter and resentful how things worked out. John, the greatest man ever born according to Jesus, fades into the background as Jesus takes center stage and he says in verse verse 29, This joy of mine is now complete. He has great joy in Jesus. What about you? Do you have great joy in Jesus Christ? Does your heart believe that Jesus is better than everything? Is your life a witness of, of jealousy defeating joy? I pray that It would be more true of us when we leave than when we came in today for all of us. Say four things this morning about this joy in Jesus. The first one, see in verse 22 to 24, and it's this, is that joy in Jesus is not a given for the godly. It's not a given. Context of our passage, remember, Jesus has been in Jerusalem with his disciples and he's done many things there. He cleansed the temple in that kind of very violent sort of way and 
And he, and he performed many signs and miracles there in Jerusalem. He met with Nicodemus at night. That was what we, the previous scene that we saw. And now, he and his disciples, they're leaving the big city and they're going out into the Judean countryside. Getting away from, he's pushing the, pushing his ministry further out into the country. And so verse 22, after this, after this episode with Nicodemus, time in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus rem- remained there with his disciples. Your translation may say, and this is a literal uh, rendering, he spent time with them. Now, I'll just push pause for just a second and don't rush past those words, that little phrase, because I think this represents, in a sense, what is the very heart of discipleship. Discipleship isn't primarily about programs and structures and classrooms and, and, and curriculums and those things. Those are very good and they could be helpful. But don't miss that at its core, discipleship is deeply relational. Jesus is, in his discipling of these men, he's spending time with them. And the, John makes note of that. Most of all, discipleship is, is about spending time with Jesus. Sitting at the feet of our master, learning from him through his word. And we do that together. That's what you find the disciples doing. So, all right, unpause. But this is a beautiful scene. Jesus spending time with disciples in the country, baptizing all those who come to him. We know from chapter 4 and verse 2 that Jesus isn't personally baptizing, but his disciples are baptizing. But Jesus is there and they're coming to him and disciples are baptizing. But now look at the next verse. And there's this note of intrigue that enters the story here verse 23 john also was baptizing at enon near salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for john had not yet been put in prison now that little we just work backwards in those verses that little parenthetical remark and Verse 24 is there because the the other gospel accounts mention that Jesus began his ministry after John was arrested and imprisoned. And and what John is, is trying to clarify here is there was a period of time, albeit probably very brief, when John and Jesus were ministering side by side with one another, doing this baptism of repentance. And, and, and so John doesn't want to confuse his readers. Again, he's writing later. He knows what the other writers, he's not contradicting them, but he's saying that, that's, they, were, they didn't talk about this time. I'm telling you about this time. So that's what he's saying. And so taking, again, taken by itself, this is another beautiful scene. I mean, John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born, spending time with his followers, teaching them God's word, leading people to repentance, preparing the way for the Lord, baptizing. So John's, he's a biblical guy. He knows the scriptures. He's a godly man. He's he's telling his disciples, no doubt, the right stuff. And there there would have been no better teacher in the history of the world other than John the Baptist saved Jesus. So, this is a great scene. And so we we have two really good things going here. This isn't the good group, Jesus and his disciples, and then the rebel group over here, the dark side. And they're over there kind of in in rebellion against what Jesus has going over here. That's not it at all. The greatest teachers in the history of the world are teaching and ministering side by side with one another. People are coming to both of them. They're being baptized, repenting, 
Learning God's law. This is good. This is, again, this is just a setting, but I think there's a point here. Is that even in the best circumstances, the most ideal situations, even with godly people, joy in Christ is not a given. No, let me just speak to us. I love this church. I love this flock. I love the, the leaders of this body. I love, I love you. I'm getting all mushy here, but, uh, but we've got a good thing here by God's grace alone. We've got a rich history as a church. We, we care about sound doctrine. We have trained teachers of God's word. We have loving relationships in this body. We have, we have, we, we care about holiness, practice church discipline. We, we've got a lot of boxes checked and those things are great. We have solid, vibrant worship and I'm grateful for so many of these things. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, but we are not above the possibility of losing joy in Christ. We're not exempt from that danger. What could possibly rob our joy in Jesus? What may have robbed your joy in Jesus? What could rob your joy in Christ? Well, there are many things, and we're just going to note one common predator here in verse 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now we're not told what the details of that discussion are. Let's call it what it is, an argument. But some of John's disciples get into this heated conversation with some Jew over something that has to do with ritual cleansings, with, with, with ceremonial washing, purification. So somehow, in the course of this discussion, things gravitate towards this comparison between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. That's we, Again, we don't know the... He didn't tell us the details, but we know the outcome, so it's something leads to that. And this gets John's disciples all in a tizzy. And they're worked up, and they, they're upset, and they go back to John with their concerns about Jesus. In verse 26, And they came to John... And said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, if we just ended there, you could read that with a, a tone of, of optimism, of excitement. You could say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, the one to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing. All are going to Him. This is wonderful. This is exactly what you wanted to happen. But it's clear from John's response that is not the tone of His disciples. They're not speaking with approval. They're speaking with resentment. With jealousy. And it brings us to the second second thing about joy in Jesus I want to see. Is that joy in Jesus is poisoned by sour jealousy. So John's disciples, they, they start out in this kind of argument with this Jew, but they don't end up angry at him, they end up angry at Jesus. And they're upset that Jesus and his disciples are becoming more popular than they are. That Jesus is, is stealing their market share. And so note a couple of things about their complaint. First, note that they purposely avoid mentioning Jesus' name. 
Not, no, no Jesus, no, no Christ, the name that John called Jesus. Just, he who is with you, the one to whom you bore witness, he, him, third person, pronouns, that guy. Second, they exaggerate the situation. All are going to him. All weren't going to him. <laughs> there were still people going to John to be baptized, and so that's not, it's not true. Third, they make this veiled rebuke of John. You get a sense that they're irritated because John doesn't seem to care. He doesn't want to do anything about it. So, so this is, this is, you see this in their complaint, and again, with John's response makes it explicit, but, but we, we know this tendency in our hearts. We get into, we get with somebody we don't like, we're jealous of. This exaggeration particularly. They always, they never, those kinds of statements. Anyway, we see the, we see it in his disciples. We see it in ourselves. Jesus is the, Jesus is the one that John pointed his disciples to. Jesus, or John said his message was, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's, he's the one sent from God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm, I'm coming and I'm pointing to him. But John's disciples are not finding joy in Jesus. They're jealous of him. John's star is sinking. His candle is burning out. His ministry is diminishing and his disciples and his disciples who hitched themselves to his bandwagon are concerned. He, he was once this headliner. Now he's seeming to be more like a has been. In their eyes. And all the while. Jesus and his disciples are not far away. And they're doing the exact same ministry. In the same region. And yet they're seeing tremendous success. People are flooding to them. Crowds that used to swarm to John and his disciples. Now are going to Jesus. Some of the same people. And so they see Jesus as competition. Rather than as being the very culmination. Of their mission and ministry. As John's disciples. So this is dangerous. Jealousy. It's poison to our souls. Shakespeare. The play Othello. There's this famous line. Oh beware my lord of jealousy. It is the green eyed monster. Which doth mock the meat it feeds on. I just. Borrow that language. We need to beware the green-eyed monster. We all face him. This is a temptation we all face. And this pastor is not exempt. I mean, because of that wonderful gift of Facebook, I get to keep up with a lot of friends from seminary and to see what they're doing. And I confess, it's a temptation. You see, went to school with these guys. I made better grades than they did. And... Here they are, this big growing church. Everything just seems gangbusters. And, and yeah, okay, the green-eyed monster growing. And then the other side of that is I can get arrogant. I see guys that are struggling and churches splitting and small and going to get proud. It's thankful for guys. It's good. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's always a threat. Respectable sins, Jerry Bridges says this of sinful jealousy, that sinful jealousy occurs when we are afraid someone is going to become equal to or even superior to us. We can become so jealous that 
we can become jealous. Maybe we've been blessed by God in some area of our lives, of our ministry, and then someone else comes along and their performance or their results just outstrip ours. They go beyond us, excel us, and so some younger person comes along who's smarter and he's more gifted and talented than we are, and 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 what happens? That green-eyed monster grows and comes to life, attacks. It springs up, jealousy does, when we lose sight of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. We start caring more about ourselves and our position and our personal fulfillment. We become discontent with God's wise and good and sovereign governance of the world. That's what's really happening in jealousy. I mean, this is what's so frightening when I think about it in my own heart is... What am I doing? I, to, to, when I am jealous, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm launching an assault upon God's throne. Because what am I saying when I'm jealous of another person? I'm, I'm saying that I think I can run the world better than God can. I think I deserve better. I think they deserve less. I deserve, we deserve to be equal or something's not right here. And, and this is wrong. And God, you're not doing your job well. It's awful. Jealousy isn't tame. It's not some kind of benign little attitude of our hearts that, okay, it's, yeah, I know it's not great, but it's not that big of a deal. No, jealousy is lethal. And it's a killjoy. Robs us of the joy in Christ that should characterize our lives and that God offers to us. Are, Are you jealous of somebody right now in your life? Maybe, maybe a coworker who's just rapidly ascending the corporate ladder around you. And maybe a, a fellow student who just, everything seems to come easy for them. You're busting your tail and working hard and everything's hard, making those, getting, passing the test and doing the papers, getting the grades and they just seem to be coasting. You're jealous. Maybe as a parent or as a couple, you're jealous of another couple's Apparent success in raising a family and parenting, and things seem to be going so well for them. Your play, your home is a mess, and envious, jealous of others. It can show up in all kinds of ways. We see it in John's disciples, and and, and we wouldn't be surprised if we saw it in John himself, would we? When you think about John's life and how tempting this would have been, he spent years alone in self-denial in the desert. He, he faced rejection and alienation from his culture and from his religion. Then he grew hugely popular. Had all kinds of people coming to him and now it's all fading away. It would have been natural. It would have been easy for John to assert himself in the situation. That would have been the normal thing to do, the natural thing to do, but he doesn't. When John is tempted up to Tempted to rise up and to assert himself. What does he do? He he makes himself small. Makes himself low. And that's the third third thing we'll see in verses 27 to 30. The third reality about joy in Jesus is that joy in Jesus swells as we shrink. Swells as we shrink. What does John tell his jealous disciples? And what is in what is his joy rooted The greatest antidote to jealousy, according to John here, is what we'll see, 
is a heaping helping of divine sovereignty. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, from God. So God is the determiner of our abilities and of our performance and of our fruitfulness and our successes and our influence. God is the one who determines those things. We don't have anything that we receive that isn't from God Himself. If someone else seems to be more talented than I am or enjoys more success than I do, it's because God has given it to them. That's how we should look at others. But what do I do? What do we do? If someone's doing well, we tribute their success to a golden spoon. To just being at the right place at the right time. Never Things like that never happen to us. But if we happen to do well, it's because of our intelligence, because of our prowess, it's because of our leadership ability, it's because of our hard work or something else. You see, John says, in view of the sovereignty of God and His bestowal of gifts, everything we have is given from God. He gives to every person as everything we receive is from Him. So John's okay with being outdone by Jesus because he knows that God does not make mistakes. That is a liberating truth to really own, isn't it? I mean, that's freeing to live like that. So what does he say? God determines the breadth of our lives and ministry. We don't receive anything except from God. Also, God determines the nature of our lives and ministries. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This was God's intended ministry for John. John says, I told you, I'm not the Messiah. I've been sent to go before him to prepare the way for him. That's God's good design. And then he uses this parable to, to help his disciples see the joy of his role. And he, it's this wedding parable. Verse 29, the one who's... Who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, Jesus is the groom. His people are the bride. John is the friend of the bridegroom. The best man, as it were. I just want to read a few sentences here. Just kind of explaining the, the, the cultural context of this, of of the friend of the bridegroom, and this is from one of the commentaries that I read this week, but it says this, the friend of the bridegroom had a unique place in a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber, and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and let him in, and he went away rejoicing for his task was completed. So that's the scene. So people now are coming to Jesus. The best man's job is done. And John is... Full of joy at this. His task is complete. The God assigned task. And John has this joy, this delight in this sovereignly appointed role. 
seeing it come to completion. It's good. So God determines the nature of our lives, of our ministry. He's sovereign over that. Also, God is sovereign over and determines the aim of our lives and our ministries. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I know it's easy to read it like this, but I I don't think that this is John outlining his new mission strategy as a prophet of God. I don't think John went away in the desert for a few days to be alone and pray and kind of say, "What God, what do you want from me for this next phase of my life in ministry? Well, I'm going to I'm going to decrease and I'm going to let Jesus increase. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what John is saying is this this must has in view God's decree. This is God's purpose, his plan. And and John's happy in it. This is the the, the design of a sovereign God. This must happen. Like that's the that's the must. And John is he's not begrudging that. He's glad in it. His joy is complete in that. So he's overjoyed to take his place, not in front of the spotlight, but behind the spotlight now. And he's glad to shrink because what does it mean that Jesus is getting bigger? And that's what he wants. That's why he sent. But isn't shrinking hard <laughs> for us? Humbly leaving center stage, that's not easy. We naturally want to assert ourselves. We, we want to take credit. We want to draw the attention that we think we deserve from others. While, while of course, while appear, wanting to appear humble. We don't naturally rest in the sovereignty of God when we feel we're being outdone. We feel we're being outclassed. Outstripped. Eclipsed by others. Our inclination is not to say. God you're right. Whatever you do is right. We tend to want to keep our turf. Hold on to that. And so I think it's remarkable. That we don't see even a tinge. Of jealousy. Or envy. Or rivalry, or competition here in John, or bitterness, or insecurity. It's beautiful. And what I'd say to us, it's possible. John is just a man. He's the best man in double meaning intended. But, but he's just a man. So this is, it's not an elusive goal to be humbly joyful. When others exceed us and excel beyond us. And note this too. What does John do? He, he just keeps on ministering. He doesn't say, okay, forget it then. No, he keeps on baptizing, keeps on preaching, he keeps on ministering to these men who are his disciples. He keeps on preparing the way. As his influence fades, he sticks with the ministry that God has appointed him to. Even as it decreases, and he's glad in it. John was a free man. I... I want that for myself. I want to be so surrendered to the sovereign will of God for my life. I want to be so passionate about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and care more for that than anything else. My name, my reputation, my, 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 my ministry and guarding those things in my life. I want to say, it's gotta be Christ. It's you. I don't, 
want to feel compelled to fight for my share of the market. And John doesn't. And I love that. I pray for me. I pray for you. I've been praying for you this week along these lines, brothers and sisters. It's dangerous. Jealousy. But joy is a possibility. And we have that offered to us. The last thing to say about this joy in Jesus is that it thrives when the spotlight is on Christ. Thrives when the spotlight's on Christ. John goes on here to, to help his disciples by just overwhelming them with these statements about the supremacy of Jesus Christ to show how vastly superior Jesus is to him. What does he say about him? He says that Jesus is better because of where he comes from. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. John is from heaven, therefore therefore he's higher than all, or Jesus is. John is simply of the earth. Second, Jesus is better in what he says. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus is the very word of God made flesh. He speaks the very voice of God. And what is, what is John? John is, has a good ministry, but he's simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. And yet he goes, and yet what we see in verse, into verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. His testimony should be accepted because he received it from God, but, but on the whole it's rejected, but there are exceptions. Whoever does receive his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So he's saying, those who accept Christ's testimony about himself affirm God's own testimony concerning Jesus, which was what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So when we, when we accept Christ's testimony, we affirm what God says is true. Third, Jesus is better because He has the Spirit without measure. Verse 34, For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus has the Spirit without any limits. And we have the Holy Spirit. But we, we don't have Him like Jesus does. And we, we're just getting to the very tip of the Trinitarian iceberg here. This is wonderful. But He goes further in verse 35. The Father loves the Son. Eternally loves the Son. And has given all things into His hands. So Jesus is better because He's uniquely loved by the Father. And has been given all things. He's been given all things because he's in this eternal love relationship with God the Father. So much there. But you, I just say, you cannot be any higher than that. Who is John compared to the Son? Why would his disciples seek to defend him against Jesus? He's been given all things by the Father who uniquely, eternally loves the Son. Fifth, Jesus is better because the destiny of every human soul rests on Him. Verse 36, finally. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Just stop there. If you've not believed in the Son, Jesus Christ, if you've not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation... This is the offer. This is the offer of the gospel to you. If you put your faith in Christ, you can have eternal life. Now, the contrary is this, is whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
What is he saying? Jesus is the only saving object of faith. He is the key to our eternal destiny. To believe in the Son is to have eternal life. To reject the Son is to means you won't see life. God's wrath remains on you. So he's the dividing line of all humanity. Jesus is better. This is what John wants his disciples to know. This is what we need to know. So John's joy, it comes from knowing Christ rightly and it comes from knowing his relationship to him. His passion is to to make Christ preeminent. Not to promote himself, not to promote his ministry, not to make much of his disciples and his following. And so in this desire for the preeminence of Christ, John found tremendous, complete, liberating joy. And we can too. We can be so swallowed up in the ministry and in the service of one who is the greatest, Jesus Christ. Those things go. So whether by life or death or ministry or life can be lived to exalt Christ. I mean, in in this way, John sounds a lot like Paul. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 and and we're going to end there. Philippians chapter 1. Context of this passage, Paul's in prison. Other preachers are free while Paul is languishing in jail. He's making the most of it and ministering to those who come to him. But other preachers are free, free, working, and they see Paul as a competitor. And they, they preach Christ, Paul says, out of envy and rivalry, jealousy. So how's gonna, how's Paul gonna respond to this? this the temptation for this green-eyed monster to come and raise its head Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. What then? What do we do then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to... De- To depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. God, I pray that for us to live would be Christ. I pray that the ambition of our lives would be able to live with the deep conviction, not just not just on our lips, but the, the true conviction of our hearts that we live it out in in all things, that Jesus is better. May Christ increase in our lives. Guard us, Lord, from joy robbing jealousy. Convict us of it where we see it, maybe today. And 
May that be replaced with this deep abiding joy in Jesus Christ that endures incredible hardship with the aim to see Him exalted. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.